song, isn't it? Amen. We get that mixed up sometimes, don't we? Why we serve the Lord. Sometimes we fall into the trap if we're not careful, at least many do, believing somehow we serve the Lord so we can gain or access heaven. So we can be saved, but that's not at all why we serve the Lord. We serve the Lord because of all he did for us. We love him because he first loved us, and that love compels us. It constrains us, and we're certainly grateful to the Lord for his wonderful love. Boy, that love moves us and motivates us to serve him. Well, take your Bible today. Turn over to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter, eh, well, make that, uh, make that Acts. Acts chapter 8, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself in the message already. I thought we'd pick up where I left off this morning. No. <laughs> no, we're starting at the beginning, all right? We're not going to cheat you out of anything. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now, before we start reading there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background uh, before we arrive at that particular passage, all right? So what we find here in chapter 7 of the book of Acts is we run face-to-face 
we run come face to face with Stephen. Of course, we know Stephen was one of the deacons of the church there in Jerusalem, and he's going to proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, he's going to lose his life. He's going to become what many of us have coined as the first martyr of the church. And so we have Stephen there, and he dies. Well, the Bible tells us, as you open up the book of Acts chapter 8, that Saul made havoc of the church. Uh, he literally would go into homes and remove men and women and put them into prison. It has to be recognized and understood that the Jewish faith met on Saturday. The new Christian faith would meet on the first day of the week, which would be a Sunday then. Here's how it was going. The reason why we're going to see that he's entering into houses doing this is because that's where the church was meeting. There was no uh, major edifice like this. There was no place where they met as one church family. The church in Jerusalem, we would learn, grew to almost 50,000 potentially. There'd be no way that they could practice their faith in the midst of the public domain, understanding how vehement both Rome and the Jews were against their faith. And so they would meet in homes. And so the church there, as they were meeting and having church, Paul would wreak havoc. He would come on in and make himself at home and remove the men and the women and throw them into prison. Can you imagine the havoc that our government would cause if they would come into this church and literally begin to remove men and women and cast them into prison? be tremendous havoc. You say, well, that, that would be ridiculous. I mean, where would my kids go? What would happen to my family? Exactly, havoc. And so we see in the opening portion of chapter 8, Saul making havoc on the church. The result of this particular blitzkrieg was verse 4. In chapter 8, verse 4, the Bible says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. That was the result of this persecution that took place in Jerusalem, that the believers began to just disperse. They began to kind of like you flip on a light in a kitchen and the cockroaches go running. And they would disperse. They went about. And I know you say, well, are you likening Christians to cockroaches? Well, in light of the passage and trying to describe how they fled, yes, but not in any other way because you are all so much better looking. Well, most of you. So anyway, <laughs> oh boy, this better be a short message, right? But anyway, we go back to Acts chapter 1. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 1. I want you to read a passage with me because this passage is very important in light of what we're discussing now. And in chapter 1, we're going to read in verse 8. Understand again that Jesus Christ had lived his life. He died on the cross. He was buried and he had risen again. He spent time with the apostles and other believers, and now he's preparing to ascend back to be with the Father. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he leaves our marching orders, and he shares with the apostles the need of the church in this day and age in which we live. He goes on to tell them, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, the church had done a very good job, it appears, in Jerusalem. They had truly met the need. They had gone out and witnessed and won so many to the Lord Jesus Christ. However, they had failed to expand their influence as God had intended. God had meant that they would not only go to Jerusalem, but then to Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth. 
May I say that nothing has changed. That God still intends that we not only meet the need of our locality, those that live within a, 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 an earshot of us, but also that we reach out in our state and our, our nation and around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church, we need to do our best to reach the world, the earth, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, the church had done a good job reaching Jerusalem, but they had failed to follow through with other portions of the, the command. Well, persecution, howbeit gruesome and however be it ugly it was, that particular element is what God would use to inspire obedience to the children of God. And before we know it, they're moving out. They're moving around and abroad. And the Bible tells us that they are literally taking the gospel with them. And that's a wonderful thing. Now, I want you to look at Acts chapter 8 again. Let's go back to Acts chapter 8. And let's look at verse 5. Now remember again, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part. Now watch what happens in chapter 8, verse 5. Again, we noted already that Saul's making havoc of the church after we see the martyrdom of, of, of Stephen. And so now the Christians are scattering abroad. They're moving about. And we, we noted some of that. And now notice what happens with Philip here in Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now, Acts chapter 8 is a turning point. There, there's an element of a turning point taking place here. Now, the ministry of the gospel to this point had been primarily or exclusively Jewish. It seems that the gospel went to the Jew. For instance, in Jerusalem, all the Jews are being reached with the gospel. Everybody's telling all the Jewish people how they need to be saved and that's a wonderful thing people are getting saved and that's a wonderful thing however that was not God's intent God intended that the gospel ultimately go around the world however the church had remained in Jerusalem the people that were being saved as a whole were remaining in that particular geographical location and not expanding out as God had intended and commanded now we see Philip going to a place called Samaria there he's preaching the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. There he's holding a tremendous revival on behalf of God. The Samaritans are a people who were the descendants of, of a, a captivity. Israel had gone into Assyrian captivity in 721 B.C. At that point, the Jewish people began to intermarry with the Gentile Assyrians, and it created what is now called the Samaritans. So now we have this people that aren't necessarily all Jewish, but they're not just all Gentile either. Now they're kind of a, a mix between the Jew and the Gentile, and it's a race or a people called the Samaritans. So we have Jerusalem being bombarded with the gospel, and we have Paul making, wreaking havoc of the church. The people began to scatter. Philip now goes into Samaria and preaches a revival that reaches multitudes of people. Eventually, Saul would be born again. <laughs> Chapter 9. He's on the road to Damascus. He's going to come to Jesus Christ in a miraculous way. And he is going to go forth then and ultimately carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Around the world, if you would. The uttermost part, so to speak. So, what we find then is you have Jerusalem, the apostles. Even when the saints 
just scattered abroad, the apostles remained in Jerusalem. So you have the apostles reaching Jerusalem. You have the saints that are scattered abroad reaching Judea. You have Philip going to Samaria, and you have Paul reaching the uttermost. Do you see how God took even persecution and used it as a tool to ultimately enable the people of God to perform his command? It's an amazing thing. And so we see Acts chapter 1, ultimately, by the time we reach the middle of the book of Acts, is starting to take shape and form. And they're actually fulfilling the Great Commission as it is often referred to. Now again, a great revival is taking place in Samaria. And it is, being, it is taking place under the leadership of Philip. A number of people, as we said, are coming to Christ. And so, so, so great is this revival that the apostles in Jerusalem ultimately send Peter and John to aid and to help and to continue the work. And that's where we arrive at our passage now. We come to Acts chapter 8, verse 26. All of this has transpired with the exception of the apostle Paul being saved, of course, and going to the uttermost. But up to this point now, we have Jerusalem or Jerusalem being reached, we have Judea being reached through the scattering of the, uh, the, the, the uh, saints, and we have Philip going to Samaria. And now we pick up there in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, <clears throat> saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem and unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, I don't know about you, but here I am, okay? I'm proclaiming and I'm preaching a great revival. I mean, people are falling on their face. They're being redeemed. They're being saved. Man, their lives are being transformed and changed. I'm up there preaching, oh, Lord Jesus Christ died for you. He saved you. Won't you receive Christ? And people are just falling on their faces and they're getting saved. And I'm like, "Woo!" And the Lord says, I want you to go out in the desert. The desert? But, 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 but Lord, look what, look, what, look what I'm doing here. And he's like, oh, really? What you're doing? Now, I don't think Philip did that. I think Philip, honestly, I believe Philip heard the voice of God. I think he obeyed the Lord immediately. He just did what he was told. But, I mean, to, I don't know about you, but it just doesn't seem... It just doesn't seem right. I mean, here's this guy leading this great revival, and they're sending, he now the Lord sent him out into the desert? Well, that's what the Bible says that the Lord did. He said, go toward the south into the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert, verse 27, and he arose and went. Now, you know, I'll be frank with you, and I'm just going to tell you this. I, I know that in my humanness, and, and sadly enough, sometimes, and, and maybe even other preachers, humanists, we like to read between the lines there. And I'm just going to say this. I don't believe that Philip questioned God on this at all. We like to believe he did because then it would make us feel better about our lack of faith. You get where I'm going with this? I, I, I struggle sometimes when I hear preaching, and I'm talking about me as a preacher here in preaching, and pastors like to go, well, you know, he probably questioned it. He probably doubted. Remember I did all that, and then I said, no, nah, I don't think he did that. Because it doesn't tell me he did that. 
If the Bible doesn't tell me he did that, then it is pure speculation that he did. And you know what I'm basing it on? My frailty. I believe that he truly obeyed. And can I tell you this? I believe it's proof positive then that you and I can just obey God without question. See, I don't think we have to fall prey to the flesh, and I don't think we have to allow the world to so corrupt us that we can't obey God immediately, that we always have to sit down first and think it through and reason it out and say, okay, God, now give me a good reason. No, I think Philip heard the voice of God, and just like that, he responded and he acted. I mean, immediately he obeyed the Lord. And you know what? When I don't immediately obey the Lord, then you know what? It's not, it's not, it's okay, Mark. You're just human. It's okay. I mean, you're really a good person. It's just that like all of us, we struggle to obey God. Can I ask you something? Is that what you do when your children don't obey you? It's okay. It's normal for kids not to obey their parents. I understand. Good for you, son, being human. No, you go, you're going to do exactly what you're told. And I don't expect you to question me. You just do what you're told. Why is it that we expect so little, that we don't think God should expect that from us as his children, but we'll expect that from our earthly children? I believe today that without a doubt that although a great revival was taking place, although God was using him in such a powerful, mighty way, I believe Philip said, Lord, you know what? I don't have to understand. I'm just going to do whatever you say. And out into the wilderness he went, And he arose and went, verse 27. And the Bible tells us a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself? Or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. The Bible says there in the passage, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. It's got to be understood that the eunuch obviously did not have a New Testament. I mean, he had uh, obviously been worshiping in Jerusalem. He's returning from Jerusalem. Uh, Maybe he was a Jew even at that point and making his way back. I'm not sure exactly all the details, but what I do know is this, is that when he was out in that wilderness, he had an Old Testament with him. Now, I don't know why he would have that if he wasn't religious, but he somehow, he's got some kind of religious background. Somehow, he knows something about the Bible. He has the Word of God with him, and he's reading in the book of, as we're going to find here in a moment, Isaiah. 
He doesn't have a New Testament to define and declare what the Old Testament's all about. All he has is what he has, and an Old Testament. And may I say that the passage that he's addressing and dealing with is a passage that we're going to find in the book of Isaiah, a passage that we learn about in Isaiah 53. Turn there, would you? This passage is a prophetical passage. It speaks about and it unveils the reality that there is a Savior coming and his name is going to be Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't say his name, but what it does do is it describes his purpose and his reason for living. Notice what the Bible says here in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 7. 700 years before the Lord even shows up, Isaiah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to write about him. He says, who hath believed our report, verse 1. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, Isaiah 53. And as a root out of the dry ground, he hath no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a land of the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so, op so he opened not his mouth. We could continue to read in that chapter and there would be other parts of that chapter that would coincide with what the eunuch was reading. But in its real emphasis, we see him right here in the early part of Isaiah, nailing down this idea, this thought, that here's, here is this one that would come, that would ultimately be a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep before her shears is dumb, and opening not his mouth. We know that that refers to and points to Jesus Christ. We know that now. As we have look on, on past and, and we look into the uh, past, we can recognize that Jesus represented everything that Isaiah portrayed, and there's no doubt he was a fulfillment of prophecy. In this passage, verse 3, we see Jesus, the man of sorrows. He is rejected. The Bible tells us he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It says, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Isn't that amazing, the thought? Just that image. Can you imagine? Here's Jesus Christ in our midst, and we turn our back on him not to look upon him. How sad is that? Huh. Let me share something. Whatever. Turn my back on you. Remember, what do you say to somebody when they talk to you? Hey, young man, look me in the eye. If you're going to talk to me, look me in the eye. Look me in the eye. Don't look down. Look up. Look me in the eye. We're not praying now. Look up. Look me in the eye. And yet, here's what mankind did to Jesus when he arrived on earth. They went, hmm. How disrespectful is that? The Bible goes on to tell us in verse 5 and 6 that he was not only a man of sorrows, but he was the substitute for sin. The Bible tells us simply that he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. He is a substitute. He was our substitute. He was the world's substitute. Because then we see not only was he the man of sorrows prophesied that, not only prophesied a substitute for sin, but he was prophesied the Savior of the world. He says in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's not just about Americans today. It's about the world. It's about everyone. We all, we all need Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the world. You say, yeah, I know, but if you're in a different part of the country, they call him by a different name. Then they're not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Oh, oh I know, I know. Well, you just don't understand. Every, they, you can call him by a different name. No, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. I mean, we gotta, we got to stop. This, this, this idea of tolerant, being tolerant of all people, all beliefs, all faith, all gender, all this, all that, has so watered down the believer's position on the Bible. We've got to be so careful that we quit making up new rules for God. Instead, we just believe the ones he gave us. Amen. Listen, I'm going to tell you, if I gave my son to die for the world and the world chose to go somehow come to me through another name, I'd say, I'm sorry, but you have to use the name of my son. I gave him to you. I gave him to you. And it's him and him only that I'm going to respect. His name only that matters to me. You go ahead and try it another way. Go ahead and do it another way. But I've given you an opportunity and it's only through my son that died, not anybody else. Don't call him something else. Don't rename him based on your culture. Don't decide how you want to come to me. You come to me the way I tell you. And you say, I, I wouldn't do that. Well, you're not God. Because the Bible teaches us that's exactly what he did. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. I don't care what religion there is in the world today. There is only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. Now listen, that's not a popular message in the culture in which we live. It's never been popular. Matter of fact, we found early that Paul, saw, or actually Saul, made havoc on the church. Can I tell you why? Because they said there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's why. It's the resurrected Christ you must trust in and believe. We don't want to believe in a resurrected Christ. We have our God, Jehovah. He said, I'm sorry, but he ain't enough now. You need Jesus. You better trust him or you're done. Boy, they didn't like it, so they went ahead and killed Stephen and they started persecuting the church because the message was not one that they enjoyed. Jesus is a man of sorrows. He's the one that was rejected. He's the one that must be received. He is the substitute for sin, and he is the savior of the world based on Isaiah 53. Now, you know, it's interesting that the eunuch is believed to carry the gospel back to Africa. The eunuch is the one who would take that gospel now that he was holding in his hand, that truth of Isaiah, and the fact that Jesus Christ was buried and rose again. The very Jesus that Philip would share with him on that road out there in the wilderness is the same one that would ultimately make an impact in the city in which he returned the community in which he went, the country in which he resided, and ultimately the continent in which he was a part of. Literally, the continent, the African continent would be reached. And many believe, based on historical 
facts and so forth and historical positions that the eunuch was the one that took the gospel back to Africa. Now I know that when I first hear from God, Philip, leave this great revival in which you're preaching. Go ahead and, and take a walk into the wilderness. Go out there into the desert and, and, and then just obey me. Oh wait, there's a chariot and there's a group of people watching through the desert. I see, and by the way, the eunuch was a very, very prominent man. So he probably had others that were with him. He probably wasn't alone. But he was the one that God sent him to. Hey, go alongside his chariot. It just happens that he's holding a book or has a manuscript called the Word of God. It just happens that it's the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. It just happens that he would ultimately ask the question, will you come up and ride with me and share with me who this is that the prophet speaks of? Oh, just a coincidence. It wasn't. Ultimately, Philip was pulled off of a real major project, and he was placed into one that was even ten times bigger. Now, I think we learn a couple things about the Lord. First of all, God cares about the individual. Can I tell you, he cared about that eunuch in his soul? He was searching for someone. He was searching for something. And you know what? God said, you know what? I'm going to share with him who it is he needs. But not only that, God was concerned about the rest of the world too. And that eunuch brought that message of the gospel back to his continent, Africa. I don't know about you, but that's an amazing thing. You know, we think sometimes we know what the big job is. Well, this is the job I ought to be doing. I've been trained. I've been prepared. This is what I should be doing. I shouldn't be teaching a Sunday school class. I should be teaching adults. I shouldn't be teaching over here working in the nursery. I should be out there leading the soul winning. I should be doing this and I should be doing that. Wait a second. What's God have to say about it? You, may, you imagine you might be holding a baby in your arms that one day will win this continent for Jesus Christ. I mean, do we recognize and understand that everything we do is ordained of God if we're truly in submission and surrender to him? That message. And what was the message? Huh. Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him what? Jesus. That's amazing to me. He preached unto him Jesus. Do you know wrapped up in that name is everything that we believe? Take away Jesus and you have no Bible. Take away Jesus and you have no church. Take away Jesus, you have no gospel, you have nothing. He preached unto him Jesus. And that message and that name would change a person it would change a nation. It would change a continent. It would change the world. You know, you and I are so quick to turn to other avenues other than Jesus Christ for the answers we seek. I mean, you, let's be honest. We, we do. We're very prone to that. I mean, life presents many turns, and at every turn that we, that we face, we face a crossroad. And in every crossroad, there's that decision to make. Where will you turn for the answer that you're seeking? It is at those moments that we must turn to Jesus Christ. I mean, life has so many twists and turns. And for the believer, every single one of them demands that we turn to Jesus Christ to know which way to go. 
Now, the world has a network of resources in which to turn to. But most of those resources omit Christ. They don't include the Lord Jesus. I mean, I think about education and science and psychology and social programming and business and politics and all of those things. Most of them omit God. They deny God. They even reject Him. I'm not saying that we don't need to learn some of these things. We live in a world today where we have to understand a little bit about business. But don't exclude God out of your business. We need to know something about politics even. It's wise as believers to understand who's running and where their stand is and what their platform is and what their moral focus is and whether they support the church or whether they don't. Whether they support marriage as God intended it to or whether they don't whether they stand on biblical principles in areas of their life. There's no perfect people. You'll not have a perfect politician. But my friend, you and I as believers need to know what we're doing and why we're doing it when it comes to those areas. So yes, we need a background in that. However, don't exclude God from it all. I am so sad when I hear about people that make choices at a ballot box without thinking about God and his word. That bothers me. I mean, there's nothing wrong with even psychology if we don't exclude God. Man has answers for everything. Because he has no God, he has to come up with other answers. Now, he thinks those are the right answers, but they're not. If you cast God out of the equation, if you remove God out of, out of life, you remove God out of marriage, you remove God out of the home, you remove God out of the church and out of the community and out of the world, my friend, you have a big void that still exists. As believers, we have the privilege and the opportunity to ensure that Christ is at the center, that he is the focus. He's at the very core of our being. We can allow him to have, truly have preeminence in our life. And he is the answer to all problems. He's the solution. See, when Philip went out into the wilderness, he didn't preach to him church unity. He didn't preach to him social doctrine. He didn't tell him how to have a better marriage. He told him about Jesus. And once you get Jesus, you can have community church, so to speak. Once you have Jesus, you can have a better marriage. Once you have Jesus, you can apply him to every area of your life. But you remove him out of the equation. You're going to end up with confusion. I think education is a wonderful thing, and I think you're, you're very ignorant not to get it if you're able to. You need to be learning. The rest of your life, we all need to be learning. To be educated in every area of life is not bad as long as it's not an immoral area. As long as it's not something that doesn't benefit us in our Christian life. I I don't think we need to understand and know what's going on in all the tabloids. I don't really think a Christian needs to be that concerned about what's happening to so-and-so in Hollywood and what's taking place with so-and-so on, what's that one show, The Bachelor. Who cares about The Bachelor? Or the bachelorette. I stopped being that a long time ago. But with the world, they do. They've got their systems. They've got their resources. They have their network. But most of the time, it omits God. Now, the older and older I get, and that's why I told you this message isn't that long. We're going to end soon. 
the older and older I get, the more I grow older, the more and more I'm convinced that the answer to every situation and every problem is the same. Jesus. Now, now listen to what I'm going to say. This, this, this may hurt a little bit, okay? All right? Now, I don't want you to turn your back because I don't want to stab you in the back. So keep looking at me, all right? But honestly, I think this is important, what I'm going to say now. Again, I said the older I get, the more and more I am convinced that the answer to every situation and problem is Jesus. Now watch this. That seems ignorant and ridiculous to the unbeliever. Are you, that's utterly ridiculous. Jesus. That's just like the, all of you Christians leaning on a crutch. Wait a second. Here's, here's what else I have to say. Here it is now. That seems somewhat shallow and naive to the nominal Christian. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm dealing with. You got to live in the real world, preacher. Yeah, you and your you know, ivory tower over there. You sit in your office. You don't have to face the real world. Of course it's easy for you. Answer's Jesus. The answer's Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Like a parrot. There you go again. Let me tell you something. If you're a nominal Christian today, you probably feel like that answer is so shallow. It's naive, preacher, to think that Jesus can fix the problems. Man, I need money. I don't need Jesus. My home, I'm going to lose my house. What are you talking about? Jesus is the answer. My marriage is falling apart. Oh, Jesus is the answer. Oh, yeah, there you go. I didn't say that if you came in my office and you said, Preacher, I'm, ha I'm having problems in my marriage. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, no, but man, I'm not going to tell you right now. The wife, she's hit me in the head with a pan four times in the last week. <laughs> well, brother, let me give you the answer. Jesus. Huh? How do I stop her from hitting me ahead? Jesus. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? That's, that, I, yeah, you're right. If that's what you are defining as my answer, then yeah, that would be a little bit naive, a lot naive. But I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the one who has the answer. I'm talking about we can't separate Jesus from this book. He is the word of God. And what my point being is, is that Jesus is the answer for any broken marriage. Jesus is the answer for a teenager that's gone wayward. Jesus is the answer for a community that's in need of Christ. Jesus is the answer. That's what I'm talking about. The same answer. The same one that Philip spoke to the eunuch about when he just said he preached unto him, Jesus. That same Jesus is the solution to our questions and our problems today too. To the committed saint of God, it makes perfect sense. You live the Christian life and you experience Jesus Christ firsthand. You watch him do miracles in your life and the lives of your family and friends. You see him put marriages back together that were on the rocks. You watch and see how he transforms a life and changes it from being a drug addict to a productive citizen in society. You watch him deal with people that are messed up on drugs and alcohol and everything else in the world, and yet Jesus Christ does a miracle in their life. Don't tell me he's not the answer. He is the answer but not to the person who's a nominal Christian, not to the one who's an unbeliever he isn't.
John 15, 5 says, I am the vine and ye are the branches. We know it from our... What's it called again? No. Our theme this year. I was waiting on the Holy Spirit to give me the answer. <laughs> Let's pray our theme. Well, what's our main verse? What's our, our text verse for that? Well, here it is. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do what? Wait a second. If I can't do anything without him, then that means I have to do everything with him. The only hope I have is to include him in everything, to allow him to have preeminence in everything then. If I can't do anything without him, then the only thing I can do is going to have to be with him. Right? Do you know what I believe the answer to COVID is? Jesus. Someone says, <laughs> you go again, you shallow preacher. There's so much more to it than Jesus. Can I tell you, with a 600% rise in children calling hot suicide hotlines, children, 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 I'm talking about people in our culture, in our country, that are so unstable right now. Suicide is just going through the roof. Life is so different than it was that people can't cope and, and can't deal with it. I mean, I'm talking about, listen, the abuse is on the rise because people are stuck in homes with people. That's crazy. Children are depressed and all kind of problems. What is going on? Can I tell you that we need to figure out what his solution is, not what the world's trying to figure out? Oh, oh we, need to talk, we need to talk to the experts. Let's let the experts handle it. Let's give it to the experts. I don't know why anybody would make decisions without hearing from the experts. The experts, the experts, the experts, the experts. Can I tell you who's the greatest expert in the entire universe? Right here he is. His name is Jesus. But nobody seems to be talking about him. Social injustice, Jesus. Let's start applying the principles of the word of God in each of our lives, and I promise you all that stuff goes away. Oh, wait a second. What about political unrest? What about racial, radical Islam? What about bullying? Child trafficking. The list could go on and on and on. And let me tell you something. I understand that we would need to outline a plan. But can I tell you, we have omitted Jesus Christ from all the plans. And it's going nowhere good. We need to put him back in the midst of the plans. We need to make him the center, uh, center focus. And, and he needs to be at the, the focal point of every single plan and program that we have. We've removed him out of schools. We've removed him out of homes. We've removed him out of churches even. Well, they say his name. They may say it, but they don't worship the same Jesus. Can I tell you, if we don't worship Jesus Christ, we will not get to heaven, nor will we have the power of the Holy Ghost in our life. He is the answer. He's the answer in the midst of a broken marriage. He's the answer in the midst of tragic loss. He's the answer in a hospital bed, and he is the answer on a death watch. 
I'm telling you, I watch people want to turn to Jesus in those kind of times. And as believers, we are quick to say, man, I've got this horrible news from the doctor. Boom, Jesus, you got to help me. Man, I've got a loved one that's sick and dying. Oh, Jesus, you got to help me. Oh, we got a teenager that's gone wayward. Oh, Jesus, you got to help me. Oh, my marriage is falling apart. Oh, Jesus, you got to help me. But the rest of the time, if we're not careful, we don't even think about it. Because we have our own little plans and our own little schemes to get through life. Listen, I don't need Jesus to tie my shoe. I know how to do it. Right? Wait, right? Do you think about Jesus when you tie your shoes every day? Probably not, and neither do I. But can I tell you, if I would lose these fingers that he gave me, I couldn't tie my shoes! We omit God just like the world does so many times. And there in the desert, the Lord sends us this wonderful message. And I think the message is definitely appropriate and absolutely necessary for the lost. But may I say that it also is absolutely necessary and essential for the believer. And that message is this. Jesus. You're going to have some decisions to make this week. You're going to face some issues in your life, whether it's at work, at home, possibly even in the near future at school, decisions. Who and what will you turn to? The world, hey listen, they, the world's got their network of resources. You can turn to those. And again, they're not all bad. The problem is, is that most of them omit him. Put him in the middle of it. Make him the priority and then make decisions. Jesus is still the answer. What the sinner needs is Jesus. What the saint needs is Jesus. The marriage the family, the church, Jesus. The society, the culture, the world, Jesus. I'm concerned today that even as believers, and I'm talking about some of the best of the best, that we have found ourselves on autopilot, going through the motion sometimes, traveling through life. We've done it so many times, we know how to get it done, that we omit Neglect Jesus Christ. He's the answer. He was the answer for the eunuch. He's our answer too. He said, of whom speaketh the prophet of this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Let's make Jesus the focal point of our lives. And then, interestingly enough, Philip, God spoke, Philip submitted. God sent, Philip shared. The eunuch surrendered, God saved. Can I tell you that if we will obey the Lord when he speaks, just submit to him, 
and we will share Jesus wherever we go, that God will save some poor sinner. I love that song that they sang today, that first one. Save some poor sinners, huh? And I'm most, most pleased that he saved this poor sinner. But you know what? There are a lot of other people that need Jesus. He's still the answer. Jesus is still the answer. A little song goes like this. Jesus is still the answer. And though time and ages roll, Jesus is still the answer. He's the answer for your soul. And though some may say he doesn't fit with their philosophy, I know Jesus is still the answer. He's always been and always will be. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd help us today in the life in which we live, the place in which we reside, in every aspect of our life, that we would recognize you as the answer to our issues, our problems. We understand, Lord, that we must apply the biblical truths, but in doing so, we are applying you the answer. Father, help us, Lord, to put the word of God at center place in our lives, our marriages, our homes, our churches, and even in our world. Lord, may we not allow ourselves to omit you or remove you, but instead prioritize you. You're still the answer, Jesus. Lord, today there might be someone in this crowd that doesn't even know Jesus as their Savior. There might be somebody listening that is lost without him. They may even say they believe that Jesus existed, that he died on a cross, but they have never accepted what he did as payment for their sin. They thought somehow they could simply include him in their life. But Lord, there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. That's what you tell us. So Lord, I pray that they would recognize that without Jesus and only him, they couldn't get there. It doesn't matter how good they are or how kind they are, how compassionate, how caring and giving. They must have Jesus and only Jesus. He is the only way. Father, may you help them to come to Jesus Christ today if they haven't already. Recognize that they just need to wash, that they need to admit their sin, their guilt before you, a holy God, and invite Jesus into their life as their Savior to accept him today. And for us as believers, may we not omit you, but instead we allow you to be what you are, the answer. In every situation, circumstance, may we put you at the forefront. May we allow you to guide and lead us. You are the answer. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.